Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and we are reading Persuasion with the Old Book Club, the Summer Old Book Club, chapters 10 through 12 of Volume 1. We are finishing Volume 1 today, and a lot of very exciting events and non-events happen. And today, I have one of my best friends in the whole world, Chelsea Fisk Swanson with me. Hi. I'm so excited you're here. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time, so I'm really super jazzed. And if any of you are wondering where you've encountered her name before, she is the creator of our brilliant persuasion quiz, which persuasion character are you, which you can take on BuzzFeed. And the link is on the blog, so go check it out. It's also, I think, on my Instagram um, but she did an amazing job on that. And Chelsea, too, who, has done it. <laughs> <laughs> who did you get on the quiz? Just so that everybody knows. I, I got Louisa and I think that that was appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Chelsea is definitely a type seven on the Enneagram, which I feel like yes. every seven should get Louisa Musgrove yes. basically. Yeah. But before we get into it, I need to introduce her properly. And Chelsea Swanson is one of my oldest friends. We met in kindergarten, actually. So that was a really long time ago now. Um, I told her very bossily that she shouldn't touch her eye. <laughs> that was how we really hit it off. Um, yeah, the eyeball. Shockingly, that was the beginning <laughs> of our friendship. I'm not sure why you thought that I would be a fun friend after that, but it did work out. Thank God. It was probably all of your hair bows. Grace always wore bows in her hair. <laughs> I did. I had a lot of really good bows that my grandmother made for me. <laughs> so we hit it off. And we, um, for a while, we went to different elementary schools, but then we reunited and became better friends than ever. We even made a documentary about our senior year of high school together called The MC, (laughs) short for Maricopa County, (laughs) a somewhat spoof of The OC and Laguna Beach. So you can um, probably really accurately date the year that we graduated from high school if you just (laughs) thought about it for a minute. Um, I'll, I'll let you guess. Chelsea radiates intelligence, balance, curiosity, and a great sense of fun. As a video producer and editor, she works on science-oriented documentary projects. She's developed some amazing Science Fridays for National Public Radio, including segments that spotlight women scientists and explore topics like how glowworms glow, or reading the brains of dogs in MRI machines. Um, seriously, you need to Google these and watch them. They're pretty amazing. Chelsea you did make an amazing me sound job. So <laughs> you are. You're like, Chelsea is literally a fascinating person. I'm not exaggerating. She lives in Portland with her husband, Brandon, and her daughter, Joe, who is partially named in honor of Joe in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. So welcome, Chelsea, to Old Books with Grace. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Grace. Thank you for that lovely introduction. (laughs) You know it. So then, of course, I have some questions for you to help us. So number one, what is your favorite author or book 
from more than 50 years ago? So I tried to think if I could like be a little outside the box here, but really you already know the answer to this, but I love little women as (laughs) Grace already alluded to. Um, So I think because of that, I would say little women. I mean, Louisa May Alcott, I like, but specifically little women, I think is my favorite old book. Um, So granted, I've not read nearly as many old books as Grace. I'm definitely a uh, reader of like contemporary dystopian speculative (laughs) fiction. So, you know, it's not totally my wheelhouse, but I, uh, I really love little women. So there you go. And who wouldn't, it is so good. (laughs) So then which literary character do you most identify with and why? So again, (laughs) so predictable. (laughs) And again, I tried to like think of someone else, but I've always really related to Joe March and hence my daughter being named Josephine. Um, And not in every single way. I think Joe March is more like career ambitious than I am. She's like, pretty single-minded in her uh, like goals as a writer, which is not the level I most relate to her on, but just sort of her, like, you know, her theatrical presence and her playfulness and, you know, her love of family and just how she approaches life and how she deals with <laughs> the like somewhat unrequited love of Lori. I feel like I totally... I've been there, Joe. Uh, so yeah, she's just always one. Every time I read, I feel like I know her and I get her. So that's that's been my answer for a while. And I think it's still my answer. It's tried and true. I really think that it, it's accurate, but it does beg the question, is Brandon then your Professor Bear? Um, okay, I've also thought about this, and actually, I think yes, because he is an older man. <laughs> my husband is seven and a half years my senior. I, I'd like to think he's a lot more attractive than Professor mm. Barry described as. Although um, the, the new um, Little Women, the- Professor Bear is a hot Professor Bear yeah, in that they one. Yeah, definitely, like, went away from... The book description. I remember I actually first saw the, um, you know, the 90s version of the movie with Winona Ryder before I ever read the book. And I was like, why did they cast that guy? He's so old and kind of ugly. And (laughs) then I read the book and I was like, oh, they were pretty accurate. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think in in many ways, he is my professor bear. So stay true to Joe. Excellent. I love it. All right. Number three, when was the first time you read a Jane Austen novel and what did you think at the time? So my first Jane Austen novel was Persuasion and not this time around. I read it when I was in college and the reason, (laughs) which I feel like you're going to laugh at, but I watched the movie Jane Austen Book Club with a friend. Which, P.S., sorry to interrupt, but you gave that to me while we were in college as a birthday present. Oh my gosh, I don't even remember that. How embarrassing. (laughs) Sorry, back back to the question. (laughs) So anyways, 
we saw that movie and we were like, let's start our own Jane Austen book club um, between the two of us. And so we set out to pick what we would start with. And it was like, okay, I'd seen the Pride and Prejudice movie and I had seen Emma and Sense and Sensibility I had seen a while ago, but, um, you know, we wanted something that, you know, was new to us. Um, and also like not that daunting lengthwise, to be honest. Yes. So we opted for persuasion. Now, the funny thing is I ended up reading it by myself because she never picked up a copy and I like <laughs> made notes in the margins. I was like ready to be in a book club and it never happened, but I finished it and I loved it. And um, I have since read more Jane Austen, but Persuasion is my favorite still. And I think it's so like fun and um, so interesting and such an interesting like character study. And so it was my first and it's my favorite. Excellent. I love that. And I love that you've come full circle now and now yeah. you get to discuss all of your persuasion <laughs> notes <laughs> after I like what, like 12 that. years. <laughs> yeah. I wish I still had those old notes um, because actually I probably do, but I just didn't dig around for them. But yeah, I'm finally after over a decade able <laughs> to partake in my Jane Austen book club. Perfect. I love it. I love that. Okay. Should we begin? I'm ready. All right. Let's do it. Chapter 10. Here we come. Yes. I love that um, chapter 10 begins with Anne's observations, like always. It's <laughs> yeah. just like, and Anne is observing again. Yeah. And here we are. And poor Charles Hayter. <laughs> Oh, but it turned out okay for him. It, it did. It did. But yeah, in this chapter, he's definitely the like sad, jilted lover. I mean, the line, after a short struggle, however, Charles Hader seemed to quit the field. <laughs> but you know what? Respect, though. Yes. I was like, you know what, Charles? Way to save face. Yes. And I think actually that that kind of perspective shows that Austin thinks very highly of him. Yeah. Like yeah. he's behaving, um, he's, he's behaving in a very proper fashion. <laughs> he's and has like the self-respect. He's, and he's picking up on the social cues, which is more yes. than you can say for a lot of characters. Yes. Including Wentworth. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. in that same, uh, that the paragraph right before she, Anna's thinking about what's going on. And of course, Captain Wentworth seems to be in a love triangle of some kind <laughs> with the sisters, Henrietta and Louisa, but, yes. um, Anne longed for the power of representing to all of them what they were about. Um, mm -hmm. she doesn't attribute guile or malice to anybody, but she doesn't think Captain Wentworth has any clue what's going on. Like he is totally missing the boat on like, you are stringing along these two sisters who <laughs> are having kind of a rough time with it. And he was wrong in accepting the attentions for accepting must be the word says the editorial Austin slash Anne. 
of two young women at once. And so it is an interesting moment where you're like, oh, Wentworth is, he's human. He's not like this, right. uh, you know, perfect male lead. True. But also, you know, I gotta say they're sisters, right? Like they need to just talk and hash it out yeah. and be like, which we'll see later in this chapter. I feel like there are some schemes afoot in order yes. to push aside a sister, namely Henrietta. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so something I was thinking about while I was reading this was that if you compare the sisters, so there's this funny line. Um, it's a right below this Charles Hader, sad, like withdrawal <laughs> paragraph. quitting the field we have a one sentence paragraph with a very funny little moment where uh one morning about this time charles musgrove and captain wentworth being gone a shooting together as the sisters in the cottage were sitting quietly at work they were visited at the window by the sisters from the mansion house it's this sister to sister moment and it made me think like it popped in my mind how so many of Austin's novels are about sisters that like yeah. value each other above like all the other relationships in their life. You know, so you have Jane and Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice. You have <laughs> Eleanor and Marianne from Sense and Sensibility. Um, and then you have heroines who like the sisters don't appear at all or they don't have any. Like, well, Emma's sister who they love each other but she's hardly in the story and um and then like Catherine in Northanger Abbey has siblings presumably sisters but she's the oldest and none of them like really appear Mm -hmm. um and then Fanny has sisters that she like develops a touching relationship with but Mm -hmm. I think this is like an interesting book because we have more fraught um sister dynamics True. And I, well, and one thing I noticed too, is it's the sister pairs, like you said, and I'm currently in the midst of reading Sense and Sensibility for the first time. And there's like the third sister that I often forget even exists. Yeah. And, um, and then in Pride and Prejudice, like you said, it's Elizabeth and Jane, Never mind the other three. Well, except that... when they screw up really badly. Right. right. Like, no, they're definitely in it, but in terms of their like value, they're yeah. less, you know, it's always about this, you know, one-on-one sister thing, I feel. Yes. So, and in this book, it's like Elizabeth is kind of very seldom in it because yes. she's away with father. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I it makes me wonder you know, Jane was super close to her own sister, Cassandra. They lived together. They, they wrote reams of letters to each other, but I find it so interesting that she's exploring these pairs of sisters still, but like Henrietta and Louisa love each other, but they have this complex dynamic going on right now Uh with Wentworth and their competitors, which is very awkward. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's definitely, which is why it's so interesting how it ends up playing out um, because it doesn't require one of them to necessarily like be mean to the other, but it's sort of just some calculation of how do I narrow this field? Well, and it is, I mean, it does seem like 
I mean, it see, it works out well. Like everyone yeah. seems happy with the result, but it is funny because it basically is Louisa being like, I have the firmer character. You need to go back to Charles Hader now. Yep. Yeah. Well, and sort of like, okay, you already established this other relationship. So this one's mine. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this other guy. So which, I mean, we can like, that's what's so funny about this chapter is that they go on a walk and everyone kind of just seems sort of la da da we're going wherever when really they end up going to Charles Hader's house whether it be I forget if it does it say like if it was sort of a Henrietta or Louisa who sort of was leading the pack there um so okay so this is a very interesting and by the way everybody Chelsea, when I asked Chelsea to be uh, on this series with me to come and have a conversation, she was like, I want the chapters with the most like weird (laughs) conversations that you can read into. Like, I want subtext to like give it to me, you know? And I was like, (laughs) yes, yes. Um, Because Chelsea and I throughout our friendship would spend like hours and hours and hours like dissecting these random small like actions or moments um like in high school which probably a lot of kids do but we were I think a little extra with it (laughs) but um this whole section of this walk is like layer on layer on layer of all of this conversation up here and then underneath it's like and freaking out subtext Wentworth like processing a lot of things out loud while Louisa has no idea what's going on. Um, But back to your question, like who did that? Who started that? It seems that Louisa and Henrietta came to some kind of a, an agreement, right? Cause you have Henrietta. I mean, Anne first is like, and this is a classic sad Anne moment. Um, She, well, she's thinking about fall (laughs) and she's like the analogy of the declining year with declining happiness and it's this very moody like unfortunate moment um because well okay sorry I need to go back why Anne is meditating on fall because I don't want to miss this Mm-hmm. This line about being overturned in the cart with the one you love than driven by anyone else, oh. like, well. Yeah, okay, so that's, like, when they're already on their walk, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. And Captain Wentworth is like, what glorious weather for the Admiral and my sister, blah, blah, blah. And he talks about, in another hilarious um Crofts moment like they tip over their carriage all the time <laughs> it's fun they, they they like just do it it's great which also by the way um if Mrs. Croft had been an answer in the personality quiz Chelsea probably oh. would have been yeah. Mrs. Croft rather than Lisa so Chelsea has a special affinity for Mrs. That's Croft true. we talked about possibly including her but we just didn't know enough about her to give a whole personality yes. profile Yes. Um, but yeah, I was glad you talked about her in a previous, in previous chapters, because I think she's a really cool sort of under the radar character that 
is actually very different from most of the females that we meet. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. But um, also there was, <laughs> I'm sorry, I know I'm like hopping around here, but right before the walk, what I love is that the sisters come by to Mary and Anne to say, hey, they're going to go on a walk and can tell that they don't really want their <laughs> So Anne's like subtly trying to hint to her sister, like, no, let's not go. But ultimately, Mary um, decides, well, she's like, okay, this is what I love. (laughs) I cannot imagine why they should suppose I should not like a long walk. Everybody's always supposing that I'm no good a walker. And yet they would not have been pleased if we had refused to join them. When people come in this manner on purpose to ask us, how can one say no? It's like, she she's just always offended about every possible outcome and poor Anne is like trying to be like no Mary let's not but once again Mary is at her finest how dare you say I'm a bad walker (laughs) how could you imply such a thing and you obviously wanted me to come or else you wouldn't (laughs) have come to our house (laughs) Mary. Oh my gosh. Okay. Sorry. Back to fall. We were No, no. So we have the scene of them walking. Mm -hmm. Anna's repeating poetry to herself (laughs) about fall. And, um, and Austin, you know, I think I said in a previous one, when Austin goes on like a little flight of like describing in this moment, it's always uh-huh. interesting because it's just not her typical mode of conversation uh-huh. back and forth. So yeah. she has this paragraph all about like the inexhaustible influence on the mind of taste and tenderness, that season, which is drawn from every poet worthy of being read some attempted at description or some lines of feeling. I mean, she's going to town on this idea uh-huh. of and then it all crashes down, all of Anne's poetic musings, when <laughs> Wentworth notes that it'll be great for the Crofts, even if they do turnover, and Louisa pipes up. If I loved a man as she loves the Admiral, I would always be with him. Nothing should ever separate us. And I would rather be overturned by him than driven safely by anyone else. It was spoken with enthusiasm, <laughs> which again, you, you catch a little glimpse of Aunt, of uh, Jane's, like, she likes Louisa. Louisa's great, but mm-hmm. there's that kind of wry, a little tongue-in-cheek moment of, like, Louisa's in- being enthusiastic again. Yeah. <laughs> there she goes. There she goes. And then <laughs> Wentworth, had you, cried he, catching the same tone. I honor you. <laughs> wow. What do what do you make of this, Chelsea? Well, it's like to me, even though he may not be aware of it yet, he's obviously overcompensating for feeling still a grudge about being rejected by Anne. Um, because I think under normal circumstances, he's not somebody who would be easily uh like convinced or overcome by this sort of flighty playful musing of like you know I I would he's not going to challenge her like oh really you could you hack it (laughs) (laughs) you know he just kind of in this 
mode of wanting to go along with her I feel because it like feels better for him in that moment yes I guess so I don't think that he's really genuinely um like admiring her I think it is a subconscious affectation more or less yes I think you're right and I think He's enjoying, I mean, I've spent, I know, an excessive amount of time talking about attention and how much attention matters in this novel. And you see Wentworth, who is a person accustomed to receiving a lot of attention, giving his great social graces and personal gifts of appearance and manner. And he's enjoying the attention from Louisa and using it as a balm for his wounded heart basically right which I think is telling that he's sort of oblivious to what he's doing to the sisters because he doesn't strike me as someone who would be that oblivious but so to me it says a lot about sort of the inner workings that he is kind of focused on self right now because he's in the presence of Anne and he doesn't really want to let on but there's just all this energy. And so he really uh, doesn't have the bandwidth to be cognizant of his effect on those around him. Yes, I think so. I think that's an accurate assessment. And then Uh, we're we're back to fall, but now it's sad fall instead of like poet fall. It's like, oh, everything's dying. And I feel like I did make, okay, so Oh yeah. So this is not until, so they're wandering this path and poor Anne says, is not this one of the ways to Winthrop, which is Charles Hayter's estate or whatever. And nobody, either nobody hears her or they choose not to respond. It's a classic Anne moment. And I think like, that's one of Jane Austen's greatest gifts as a novelist is that she just sprinkles these things in here that are so like, if you were reading this on your own, you would hardly, I mean, you might be like, well, that's rude, but it wouldn't really stick in your imagination necessarily. But we see this time and time again, and it just shapes so much of how we perceive Anne as a character and how Anne perceives herself as a character. One of her main goals in life is to not be noticed. Right. It kind of goes back to, I think it was in your first podcast maybe of the book club where there was a quote from like Virginia Woolf or somebody who said like Jane Austen is, what was it? Something about being- Like of all great authors, she's the hardest to catch in the act of greatness. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you said, it's just these observations and things that are sprinkled in that you don't notice, but they're building this picture for you. Um, Yeah. So, which is why, which is partially why I just love this book because it is so full of those little yes. sprinkles. Oh my oh. gosh. And speaking of sprinkles, we have Henrietta conscious and ashamed, which is hilarious. <laughs> Once they're in the environs of Winthrop and she's seeing no cousin Charles walking along any path or leaning against any gate. And she's ready to turn around. She's like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe we're here. Can't believe Louisa talked me into this. I'm so embarrassed. And then we do see, we have the line. Louisa seems the principal arranger of the plan. Once she kind of was like, let's go in, let's talk to him. And it's like, okay, Louisa, we all know what you're doing. 
Yes. You are trying to push your sister off on Charles Hader so that Wentworth is yours for the taking. Yes. And we, on this occasion, have another delightful Mary moment. <laughs> Um, (laughs) where they're arguing about whether she should you know do the cousinly nice thing I mean obviously she's married into the family but they're her cousins now too walk down visit Charles Hader with them and she's like no like I was tired but that would make me far more tired and then um she says to Captain Wentworth which is again hilarious it is very unpleasant having such connections, but I assure you, I have never been in the house above twice in my life. <laughs> and here's where we see that Wentworth hasn't like that. He is actually aware and, you yes. know, because he has an artificial ascending smile, which is hilarious to even envision. Like he's like, I know. I love, I love. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it's interesting too, that, you know, Mary says this to him. And like you talked about with um, Marissa, like she doesn't know what went down with, with Anne and Wentworth. So she doesn't, is it cognizant of the fact that like he would have once absolutely fallen into this camp of people that Mary did not want to associate with, but yet she's like venting to him. And it's just so funny because it's sort of like, okay, she just is so unaware Yes, the ultimate in like not recognizing any kind of cue yeah. ever, ever. And and the contemptuous glance, which Anne knows the meaning of that Wentworth gives as he turns away. Yes. So and then one of my favorite on this page. Um, so you know, Anne and Mary are sitting. Mary's found a comfortable seat, but then Louisa comes back out and wants to like go find chestnuts or something with Captain Wentworth. And then it says, Mary was happy no longer. She quarreled with her own seat, was sure Louisa had got a mutt bed somewhere. It's just like, gosh, this woman does not stop. And how do you quarrel with a seat? I mean, that is like very impressive. I just picture her like rearranging. <laughs> get comfortable uh yeah i think that um something i really love about this particular sequence is that the bodily language of it is so Mm -hmm. um clear like you can just picture this scene so well yeah yeah now one question so i have this question for you grace because you know so much more about this time period i feel like in a lot of austin novels people are always sort of walking the grounds and meandering from one estate to another. So I don't really know what that looks like. Is it, there's just a bunch of trails from everybody's house and you just sort of wind up where you wind up or what's, what's that about? So, okay. That's a good question. And it does help us to envision the world of this novel really well. So there's a couple things going on. Um, you talk about like wandering around people's grounds. Yes. People often had different like cultivated paths. That was very in vogue at the time (laughs) where you would have, um, like, did you ever read Mansfield park? Yes. Where Fanny is like really obsessed with avenues of trees. Like she thinks Uh they're really, and she just wants to walk down the avenue of trees at, um, Southerton, the, uh, uh, Maria's, 
uh, idiot future husband's house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that's one example of like people would do tree avenues or build little winding um, roads through their woods. Um, I mean, if you think about it, none of these people, they were gentlemen and ladies, so they didn't work. Mm -hmm. They were just wealthy from inheritance and they had to find ways to amuse themselves. So that was one way was this kind of building of paths, um, around the same time, people started doing these things called, um, follies. They would build follies, which they would, um, construct like what looked like ruins on their grounds, but they really weren't ruins. They were brand new. Yes. Or they would build like a Grecian tower and you can still see these in England. If you go like these funny follies as they called them, where it was like a smaller scale, um, tower that looked like, uh, an Italian tower out of Dante. And it was like romantic (laughs) and fit, you know? So that's one thing that's going on. Another thing that's going on is that all over England are footpaths um, and they still exist today. And Mm -hmm. England actually has ancient laws about um, footpaths and how you can't um, cut them off. If you're, if they're on, if an ancient footpath runs through your Uh land, you can't um, fence it off. It has to be open to the public. Yes. It's super cool. So like if you ever go to like the Cotswolds, Um, Uh or other parts really anywhere. But my experience of it was with the Cotswolds in England, which is a a part of England, sort of near Oxford. And you just have these little footpaths that like go across people's fields and who knows how long they've been there. But that was also an experience where you would just wander a footpath into the next town or to the next manor or wherever you wanted to go. And those were, a lot of them were super old and um, just part of the landscape. So okay, that yeah. makes sense. I was sort of like, how can they accidentally wind up at their yes board of neighbor's house? But okay, that makes sense. Um, yes. Thank you. I'm glad I asked. Yes, it's really fun. Um, I highly recommend if you ever are in England um, visiting, or if you are English, you probably already know about this. But um, taking the footpaths around these little villages is. Uh, really lovely and um, actually C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were huge fans of like little footpath holidays where they would just like pack up their bags and wander around and then spend the night at a random inn in some village which sounds really fun so yes so that's what's going on here okay Um, yes okay and now we are back to the Louisa Wentworth um fan yes. club over each other yes. Wentworth being uh bitter and not realizing how much he's flirting mm-hmm. uh Louisa being uh Louisa so yeah and she this tells is... on Henrietta <laughs> yeah and I feel okay is this the part um Oh, right. So this is where they're talking, but is this where Anne is like, can overhear, but they don't know. Much to her horror. Yes. I I feel like this happens a couple of times, even specifically in this chap, in these chapters of just people not realizing she can hear and it's so juicy. And I love that. And that's why this book is like such a page turner because 
you're picturing being Anne, like sitting down and then all of a sudden these voices across, you know, behind a shrub, you start to hear. And I did want to point out one thing early on is that um, when they're talking about this walk, it says, um, you know, when, when Anne realizes now that Wentworth is joining the party, it had said, could Anne have foreseen such a junction, she would have stayed at home. But from some feelings of interest and curiosity, she fancied now that it was too late to retract. And I feel that that's a little, you know, normally we think of Anne as someone who just kind of is very, like sometimes just submissive in ways and just sort of, you know, even though she's very analytical in her mind, she often just sort of opts out. Yes. Um, but I loved that that shows us a bit of her curiosity and it's like, okay, so she is actually kind of intrigued and interested enough to put herself in this uncomfortable situation. Yes. And I think that's what's really significant about this group of chapters that we're reading together is that we're starting to see Anne come out of her shell. She's starting to change. It's very subtle. But words like that, like where you start to see her curiosity, her interest is peaked. Um, Things are beginning to change. And Mm -hmm. in chapter 12, we'll really see that come even more to the top of of the plot. So we'll get there in a minute. So here now... Wentworth and Louisa kind of come into earshot and um, yeah, it's like their mutual fan club. And this is a pretty harsh section for Anne. Yes, this is brutal. Um, basically, again, we see Wentworth projecting what he thinks is ideal onto Louisa and away from Anne. So Quote, your sister is an amiable character, but yours is the character of decision and firmness, I see. Uh, If you value her conduct or happiness, infuse as much of your own spirit into her as you can. But this, no doubt, you've been always doing. It is the worst evil of too yielding and indecisive a character that no influence over it can be depended on. And here, this section is screaming and but not even what really happened it's Wentworth's interpretation of what happened with Anne right so he uses the word indecisive which actually I uh I don't think is a very good description of Anne at all um but that's how he's like filtering it through his experience right and then he says everybody may sway it let those who would be happy be firm and yeah it's like he feels that she wasn't strong and like convicted enough and she allowed herself to be persuaded out of a marriage with him. The brutal thing about this is that he doesn't know that she's listening. So sometimes I feel if it was, it would have been a real slap in the face if he knew, but at the same time we could have thought, okay, this is him feeling rejected and his way of getting back. But here for Anne to overhear this, it's like, it must be true because he's telling it to somebody when he thinks I can't even hear. Yes. And I also think it's Austin's way of preserving his character because if he said this in front of her, it would have been malicious. Like it would have been a little like dagger and a little twist of the dagger um, in anger 
but as we can see, it's him wrestling with it with himself. And so, um, his character is preserved by it being an overheard conversation. Uh Um, although I will say that, um, do you think that we're meant to take this hazelnut example, like seriously? Because it's kind of a really stupid example. (laughs) It is a very stupid example. And maybe it's just meant to illustrate that he's not even totally like convinced. Yes. That's a good point. I don't know. Um, He just definitely doesn't seem totally himself, even though we didn't know him many years ago through Anne's eyes. I think we can see that he's kind of playing a part here and it's not malicious and he's not even intending to, but it's a self-preservation thing. Yes. So where is the hazelnut thing? Where is that? (laughs) It's right after like he and Louisa are chatting. Yeah. And so he takes down this hazelnut from the tree or bush or whatever it is. I don't really know what hazelnuts grow on. I hate to admit, but um, (laughs) he's like a beautiful glossy nut blessed with original strength has outlived all the storms of autumn, not a puncture, not a weak spot anywhere. And of course he's being playful. Like Austin says is playful solemnity. So he's kind of like putting on his preacher's robe, like making this, um, mock example but at the same time it's still kind of in my opinion and I could be wrong about this I'd love to know in what spirit this was written in because I can't tell but Mm -hmm. I think it's another like you said another place where we see Wentworth's judgment is just a little bit screwy right now because it's such a silly example um that it's a, it's happy compared with all the nuts that have fallen on the ground because of its firmness. Um, now I'm interested in you, you were saying that you feel like he kind of gets it wrong here in terms of describing what we know to be how he feels about Anne's actions in the past um, yeah. by calling it yielding and indecisive. How do you feel like, he's missing the mark in terms of interpreting her past behavior. I think he is mistaking as everybody does because Anne is, uh, he's right in using the word yielding. Anne is ready to help. Anne is ready to adapt herself to the situation at hand. We've seen that when she went from being with the Elliot's to when she went to being with the Musgroves and she adapts herself and works on that. Um, but she's still herself. And it's not that she's being indecisive as he says, it's not that she was swayed by whatever direction the wind was taking her, like the hazelnuts that fell off the tree. Mm -hmm. Um, but that she valued lady Russell as a mother and couldn't, um, with that set of values, couldn't, um, make a decision that went against her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's more of a conflict of values rather than indecision or yeah. um, softness. Okay. Yeah. In my opinion. No, I think that's, I think that's accurate. And I feel like that's, I couldn't necessarily quite, quite articulate it as well, but I think you're absolutely right that it, 
she had a set of values that she was being guided by. And um, unfortunately, it didn't work out in his favor. Right. And that's where, too, we see like some of Austin's earlier editorial comments, like where she talks about Anne is being prudent and turning to romance at a later age. We see this conflict of values in her choices, but it's not that she didn't have a firm character. In fact, she had right. a very firm character. Right. Um, and so I think in this section over and over, Austin is driving home the point that Wentworth has confused firmness and like decisive action with, uh-huh. um, with, uh, I guess, sorry, the other way around the lack of, um, so indecision, lack of firmness with, um, what actually happened with right. Anne, which was a loyalty really. Uh-huh. And, um, a conflict in, in who to listen to, who to take the most seriously. And mm-hmm. she even says, um, at some point, and I think we'll, uh, not in this section. Well, I'm not going to say it yet. Yeah. I think it's too far. Yeah. I think it's at the end. I better stop. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I know what you're thinking, but yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, so yeah, we overhear that conversation, which is just such a sharp sting. Yes. But then at the end, yes. so there's like this big pause. Yes. But then comes the reveal that, well, okay, first I love the lead into this where I think Louisa's being extremely generous because she says Mary is good natured enough in many respects, but she does sometimes provoke me excessively. I think calling her good natured in many respects is highly generous. That is a stretch. <laughs> that is a huge stretch. Yes. I think um, that um, you're right. Louisa is a generous person. Like yeah. I think it's part of her character. She's trying to give Mary the benefit of Well, the and then in a way, I think this next part slightly softens what we just experienced. Yeah. Because then she says, um, we do so wish that Charles had married Anne instead, and then goes on to have this conversation where we realize yes. that Wentworth had no idea that Charles uh, Musgrove had proposed to Anne. Yes. And seems interested in it which to me like in my little romantic heart reading this it's like oh he's interested he wants to know about yes who previously proposed to Anne which is like a huge signal to me that like okay he's still interested yes definitely yes I think that is exactly right and we are confirmed that his eye hasn't left Anne, despite all of his anger. We see this at the very end of the chapter. It's again, just like in the last section, when he um, pulls the the child off of Anne's shoulders, who's driving her crazy as she's trying to tend to the other Musgrove child. It's another moment like that, where it's something so small, something hardly worth remarking upon by anyone else in the party, but the Crofts drive by, thankfully right side up not overturned (laughs) and they um stop and offer anybody a ride and everybody's like no no um but nobody really listens to Anne, and who is genuinely fatigued at this point 
and Wentworth whispers something in his sister's ear and um and the result is that Mrs. Croft specifically invites Anne to ride home with them saving mm-hmm. her and so we know and, and Captain Wentworth helps her into the carriage so we know that he is watching her he's paying attention to her um and he's the only one who's noticed that she's fatigued and tired and having a hard time and so those little actions where he's still paying attention thoughtful attending yeah. i mean and Anne is like, oh, she's, she's hyper aware of it. She like she, has to take a break every time yes. one of these happens. Yes. Um, and it's it's remembrance that neither of them can escape. Right, right. And I actually do, I think it's um, you know, the way Austin writes Louisa, it's like she could have easily been sort of a hateable enemy competitor, but even Louisa here is like very complimentary of Anne and saying we wish our brother would have married her instead. And it's kind of, it kind of makes you be like, okay, Louisa, at least you recognize that Anne's cool. Yes, Uh, definitely. I like that, but yeah. And then um, I love the line too, after this, all this when of Anne, it says her spirits wanted the solitude and silence, which only numbers could give. I know that's such a killer line. So, I mean, it's so Anne yeah. to blend in with the crowd, and it's again this this loneliness, um, but that Anne also uses and exploits for herself to process. So, uh-huh. yeah, that's a, one of those lines where you read it and you're like, oh. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go on to chapter 11 because I feel like we probably need to pick up the pace a little bit because we're so <laughs> enjoying delving into every juicy moment. But I'm like, yes, oh my gosh, keeping an okay. eye on the time. Okay, okay, yes. Okay, so Anne is preparing to go back to Kellynch. Um, she is getting a little apprehensive about it because she's going to be in the same drawing room with um, Captain Wentworth more in scenes uh, of remembrance, which is tough. And as we just know, the remembrance has not left either of them. And she knows that. So she's going, oh my gosh, he's going to be thinking about them. Just like I'm going to be thinking about them. This is going to be awful. But she's also curious about it. So again, we see that little hint of a different Anne. And and then there's a new scheme and the scheme is to go visit Lyme, the beach town (laughs) and uh, to visit Captain Harville, who's Captain Wentworth's best friend. And uh, everybody's excited. Louisa is the most excited. And this is a really, uh, this is a Jane Austen cutting wit moment where, um, Louisa has sort of had her head puffed up by Captain Wentworth, it appears, and in her firmness of character. So Louisa, having formed the resolution to go, and besides the pleasure of doing as she liked, being now armed with the idea of merit in maintaining her own way, bore down all the wishes of her father and mother for putting it off till summer, and to Lyme they were to go. Um... That is a very like 
punch of a line. Yeah. She's armed with it. It's um, it's become a weapon now in getting her way. And uh, getting her way has now become meritorious. So and this is sort of a little uh, m- like foreboding of what's yes. come for her newfound. Yes. Uh, yeah. We'll get there, but. Yes. So anyways, yeah. tuck that away in the back of your mind. The idea of how much of a firmness of character is a virtue and is now. Taken what Wentworth has said and really. Yes really yes. applied it <laughs> definitely so they go to Lyme yes they um are very excited to be at Lyme lots of wondering and admiring and they meet Captain Harville and his family and Captain Benwick a new yeah. another new character and what do you make of these various captains well, I feel like, I mean, Harville just seems solid, like salt of the earth kind of guy. Um, you know, later when they describe his home, he's like built all these things and, yeah. you know, he's kind of like wounded. So, but he stays active. So he seems cool. He's kind um, of like a male Anne. Like I was reading this going like, oh, this is very interesting that Wentworth is so attached to him. Because it keeps talking about his usefulness and you know how everything about Anne is about her usefulness and how like, even though he's wounded, he does all these things, blah, blah, blah. I was struck by that this time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is different from Benwick, who Mm -hmm. is this very sorrowful, um, you know, poetic fellow and, um, but we like him. But I know, so one thing you and I discussed, and I think this only has the first reference to his appearance, but um, it says somewhere that he is not really that handsome. Um, but then later in some future chapter, he's described as being better looking than most. So if anyone has any contenders for perhaps celebrities or people that they would describe as oh, not yeah. that handsome, but better looking than most, we spent a long time texting about this and actually I would 100% love to like see any comments or ideas from people oh, wait, on- you know what that wasn't about Benwick that was about who we'll meet later in oh, oh oh yes okay no but it's okay I mean it's still in these chapters yes um, but it's when we meet Elliot so pause hold that thought pause we'll return to that I'll think about it. <laughs> yes. We're we'll talking about that in a minute. Um, Sorry, yes. I jumped again. I jumped again. But yes, I like Benwick. And um, it. I also, again, appreciate the attention that he pays to Anne because mm-hmm. I feel like anyone who recognizes her goodness is a solid, uh, a solid person in my book. Yes. Um, I yes. think an thing that he brings out in Anne that we then see again later is that, you know, he is all sad because his fiance died. Um, but so, um, and yet said Anne to herself as they now move forward to meet the party, he has not perhaps a more sorrowing heart than I have. I cannot believe his prospects so blighted forever. He is younger than I am, younger in feeling, if not in fact, younger as a man. He will rally again and be happy with another. I mean, she is saying that her sorrow is worse than a guy whose love just died. Um, yes. 
which I think is like very interesting. Yes. And I think here we get a glimpse of Austin's keen awareness of the difference in being a woman versus being a man mm-hmm. where Anne is feeling the burden of being an unmarried spinster basically I mean she's only 27 but in this society and her whole family has written her off she's not going to get married and so I think that this is a moment where we we read that and we go Ooh, like that's weird. Why would you compare yourself to the person <laughs> who just lost their fiance in a tragic death? Like, and <laughs> ew. <laughs> but like, but I think what we're glimpsing here, not to defend the gross uh, comparison, <laughs> but is Anne's entrapment um, as a woman. And I was struck by that same 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 thing that you read out loud and that weird line younger in feeling if not in fact younger as a man and I was like what does it mean to be younger as a man but I think it's exactly what you said like your expiration date if you're a man is way later yes and he's still eligible in every sense I mean um he doesn't have an expiration date. Yeah. He doesn't have a time clock ticking behind him. Um, and, and I think there's that real hint of bitterness there that we get. Um, and I guess it's, it's not quite bitterness. It's softer than, than bitterness, but I think that's where we, we really see it. Austin coming through with a social commentary on the lot of women and how, and the, uh, the quick aging and the quick discarding of women and their feelings in contrast with men. And that's going to be a major theme later. And I feel like also regret is something that comes out in it because in the next, well, a couple of paragraphs forward, um, she, you know, of Harville and Benwick, she says, um, these would have been all my friends was her thought and she had to struggle against a great tendency to lowness so it's just it's just so depressing because yes these are cool people and she recognizes that and she's just oh what could my life have been and she's already she feels like it's already slipped through her hands and she's just resigned yes at least in the way she's expressing these thoughts maybe there's still like hope within her but Um, Yeah. And that chapter ends with her kind of musing on the irony of that fact. When the evening was over, Anne could not but be amused at the idea of her coming to Lyme to preach patience and resignation to a young man whom she had never seen before. Nor could she help fearing on more serious reflection that like many other great moralists and preachers, she had been eloquent on a point in which her own conduct would ill bear examination. Yeah. Mm hmm though and she's right I mean that's the again this is a point I think in which we are seeing Anne begin to transform and um, I never really thought about her service to Benwick in that light because you just go oh it's Anne being useful again of course she's always like doing that but what I'm seeing here upon this rereading is um Anne doing a lot of self-reflection on like am I 
Right. Am I doing to myself what Benwick is doing? Like, am I enforcing, I mean, we shouldn't go into it, but they're talking about all these books and he's reading all these melancholy books and placing himself (laughs) in this place, in this mood. And she's like, maybe you should read something a little bit lighter. (laughs) It's like, it's therapy. And she's realizing, oh, I need to take a dose of my own medicine. Yes. Yeah. And um, stop kind of like prematurely setting myself in the background over and over. Mm -hmm. Okay. Chapter 12. Here we go. Yes. The infamous chapter 12. The scourge of undergraduate readers who are all super (laughs) upset with why this is so dramatic and stupid. (laughs) And, you know, one thing that's interesting is so... um, we both, as you and I discussed, Grace, we were just at the beach, which is so fitting for reading these pictures online. We were at different beaches. Um, yes. But I had a very bad cold while I was at the beach. And I have to say this whole idea of the sea air doing people good. I enjoyed being at the beach, but I didn't <laughs> quite feel the healing powers. So. Not like Anne, who like <laughs> literally becomes a new woman on the beach. Seriously, and I have like more to say on that once. Yeah, but it's uh but yeah, so here we are in Lyme. Um with the ocean just bringing out the best in everyone. Yes. Um, yes. And a funny little conversation between Henrietta and Anne beginning that chapter where yeah. Henrietta is clearly settled back down into Charles Hader destiny. Yes. Um, and then we meet another new character. Um, so a gentleman. Yeah. Yes. So he, this is the <laughs> reference that I was thinking earlier. But yes. Anyways, Grace, go on. Introduce us to. Um, Anne is looking remarkably well, as it says. <laughs> uh, her regular, very regular, excuse me, which again is a phrase that I'm like, does that mean like even I think it does but um, (laughs) it's interesting very regular very pretty features having the bloom and freshness of youth restored by the fine wind which had been blowing on her complexion etc etc this mysterious gentleman admires her exceedingly he gives her an admiring glance and Wentworth notices it which I love This is like one of my favorite just little yes. moments. Yes. First, I also want to point out again this whole sea air health thing. So, Anne, let us be reminded that she's currently walking with both Louisa and Henrietta, who have been praised as like these beauties. Okay. And we've heard about Anne in prior chapters as just being like this dried up husk of a person <laughs> but all of a sudden of all three women this stranger walks by and it's Anne that he looks at which I'm just like I cannot figure out was like man this physical transformation she apparently has is either huge or everyone was just being really blind to her actual beauty before I don't know it just is very stark dramatic moment and it's interesting because it's it's this weird moment where somebody else notices her other than 
Wentworth other than Benwick, who is also noticing her. And I do think that part of it is her interaction with Benwick is like enlivening her where she's realizing some things about herself that need, sure. to, need to go. So and she, she's actually being useful. Like you, yes. like she takes, you know, a lot of self-worth yes. from that too. Yes. Um, and, but it's just this little moment. Um, and I have no, I mean, maybe the, the sea breeze at Lyme is particularly wholesome. Um, <laughs> but I have no explanation for it other than that. But I do like, it honestly reminds me, like this is one of those cinematic moments where you see like the flash of eye contacts. Like you can just vi- visualize it so well of the, yeah. the like. Do you ever reenact it as you're, re- like sometimes when there are these really subtle gestures or facial expressions, I'll find myself just like, trying to enact how I think it look. Like, you know what you mean. Like, I have a really, know, as you well know about me, I have a very um, expressive face and I have a very hard time disguising my feelings about things, <laughs> um, which has worked in my disadvantage in the past <laughs> at moments. Um, again, Mr. Darcy of not Elizabeth Bennett, uh, sadly, but um <laughs> So I find myself mimicking people's facial movements while I read, which is so embarrassing and weird, but yeah, yeah, I totally like reading this. I would be like, sorry for the people on the podcast who can't see the weird face I just made, but anyone listening, tell us if you do the same thing, because I do that as well. (laughs) And it's a prime moment because like you said, he passes by and then Wentworth looks around instantly in yes. a way which he noticed it. And I love that. That is just oh. ripe with um, tension. It is. And I don't know, just putting yourself in Anne's position. It's so exciting. It's a victory. It's a total yeah. victory. It's such a triumphant moment because it's like every, you know, the tension is on her and you know, even though Anne is a person of just like um, really high character and values and um, and all that, for the attention here to be paid in sort of a more, you know, looks-based, objectifying yes. man, while, while normally that's not like our most valued kind of attention, I feel like here, because Anne never gets that, yes. it's kind of fun to have her be the object of desire in that way and it is literally the reverse of how her family treats her as this like faded out like (laughs) rag doll of a person so to be noticed physically is a huge deal here and it I mean I love this scene because it it makes me feel like um like in high school when you had a crush in high school, but you would never like, well, if you were me, probably a lot of you are a lot bolder than I was, but if you, um, never spoke to them, but then one day you make like a prolonged eye contact with them and you know that you are looking particularly cute that day. And it's this moment of like, that you just float on the rest of the day. And I feel like that's Anne in this moment where you're like, oh my gosh, 
So yeah. And to have someone else notice, especially Wentworth, it just sort of validates. Yes. The whole- yeah. Cause then it's not just random. It's really yeah. remarkable when somebody else notices the right. sexy eye contact that somebody else right. gives you. <laughs> right. And yeah. I just, I love too how it's, it says he looked around instantly. I just, to me, that means like he saw it. He was paying attention. Yes. He was on alert. Yeah. And when the other guy came around, it was like, what's happening? Yeah. So that mysterious gentleman was Mr. Elliot, who we learn is their cousin, their distant cousin, who's actually the Elliot who's going to inherit Kellynch Hall. Mary does a Mary move and talks excessively about the Elliot continents, which is yes. hilarious. Um but again, this is the person that, as Chelsea brought up, um, please quote it again for everybody, because oh, I really is... do need to hear people's ideas. Okay, so he seemed about 30, and though not handsome, had an agreeable person. Now, I don't think it's in this chapter, but in a future chapter, I don't feel like this is giving any spoilers, but in a future chapter, we'll hear that he is then said to be like... Uh, more attractive than most or better better looking than most or something like that and so we were trying to pinpoint like who fits that grace I think had a great example in Tom Hanks yes that was the best example I could come up with where it's like Tom Hanks is not like conventionally conventionally handsome but you go he's better look he's better to look at than most yeah yes so anyways Send us your uh, comments on who you yeah. think that is. <laughs> but we got to get to, we're running out of time. We got to okay, get to yes. the Lyme incident. Yes. So I had to look up a picture of the cob because yes. I like, what kind of stairs are these? That yes. Louis Describe is- the cob to us. And by the way, the 1994, I think it's 94 persuasion actually films on the real cob. Right. on the real at the real lime so if you want to see it you could watch that movie but yes so yeah it's like this wide break wall this like stone wall basically that they're walking on but there's different levels like to a lower and an upper and so there's these sort of small stone steps that go down from the upper level down to the lower i guess is that not doing a great job. No, that's right. And it's pretty high. I mean, it's a break, it's a, it's a break water. So it's like fairly high, fairly imposing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not totally, I just wasn't sure what to picture. Cause I'm thinking the girl fall off, fell upstairs. (laughs) So yeah, it's a little, um, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, I mean, it's still kind of a lame accident. Like, let's be real. (laughs) <laughs> and here again, we see Louisa emboldened by this whole idea that like firmness is the height of one's character. Yes. And so I am determined I will, is what she yes. says as she jumps to precipitate by half a second, <laughs> falls on the pavement on the lower cob and was taken up lifeless. That- I was taken up lifeless. Talk about dramatic. And best of all, Mary starts yelling, she is dead. She is dead. (laughs) Um, Henrietta faints. It says her face was like death. Yeah. 
Okay, so yeah, Henrietta faints. Mary is losing her ass. And quite frankly, Charles Musgrove is not much help at first. He's just kind of like stunned. No, and and Wentworth too. He's in this agony yeah. of silence. And literally he says, is there no one to help me? I mean, whoa, he's completely. Yeah, this is uh, a naval officer. It was too much but, for him. <laughs> but Anne steps in. Now, a note that I made is that interestingly, Anne is at her best here. She takes charge. And she's at her best when there's no time to overanalyze and second guess. This yes. is a moment that necessitates immediacy. And she like jumps to it and is strong and decisive. And um, we just see her in this. And, and Wentworth sees her in this yes. uh, very specific kind of moment that we don't often see her. No. And we see her giving directions. I mean, yeah. again, it's it's part of Wentworth's mistake that she's this like indecisive, waffling person. And we see that Anne is really the person you want in an emergency. She's mm-hmm. not indecisive or waffling at all. She becomes, um, she takes on all the firmness of character one could desire in this moment without the stubbornness and will that we see exhibited by Louisa, for example, or exhibited by Mary (laughs) time after time. And later in this chapter, when Mary throws a hissy fit about not staying to nurse Louisa, and of course is utterly useless. Well, and one, that's what she is. One ridiculous thing about Mary. I don't know where I made a note of it, but at some point she's like wanting once, once the tasks are delegated and um, like Wentworth is beside himself because he sort of partook in this accident. Benwick is gone getting a doctor. And so Charles is holding Louisa and he's really the only one like physically assisting Louisa at this point. And Mary is like trying to call him back to help her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so ridiculous. Oh my um, gosh. Yes. Grace, maybe way in your expertise here. So when Anne's delegating, she's like, heaven, for heaven's sake, go to him. Um, rubber tells her salt. Do people just walk around with salt? Honestly, that's a good question. I don't really know. I mean, Anne does, apparently. Yeah. Um, I Is feel like... a person that would have, like, a first aid kit in her purse, basically? It sounds like it. I mean... Or at least one in her car. Like if she lived today, she would be the friend that like somebody stumbles on the hike and the she's the friend who has a first aid kit in her car and is ready to go. Um, I do think that having salts on hand, like among fashionable young ladies, especially if you were not the fashionable young lady, but like the slightly elder lady who took care of everybody else, like that would be, you know, the person. The designated driver. The designated driver. Yes, exactly. Um, Okay. Yes. And I love that uh, towards the end of this chapter, Anne is meditating on this whole thing and Wentworth is in agony. Um, And... And he's he's saying, she was so eager and so resolute. I shouldn't have given way to her. Um, Which, 
<laughs> Anne said and thinks to herself and wondered whether it ever occurred to him now to question the justness of his own previous opinion as to the universal felicity and advantage of firmness of character and whether it might not strike him that like all other qualities of the mind it should have its proportions and limits um and so again we get a little a little teeny bite here a little hint of sarcasm but more so we get this new idea of values and of virtues specifically and the idea mm-hmm. of means and proportion that has been in the background but is really now coming to the forefront of how do you let persuasion affect you who should you listen to who do you yield to when is yielding good when is yielding bad and this is now kind of entering the conversation yes and wentworth is seeing Anne for the capable person that she is yes and yeah, I feel like this is the turning point. You know, yeah. he witnesses her in this new light. Yes. Uh, yes. And we see that his judgment of her is changing. So that's, um, he's taking her judgment seriously instead of relying only on his own judgment. And that word judgment is used multiple times here. And it's how the chapter ends other than them telling Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove about Louisa. Um, But she says the remembrance of the appeal, she's talking about how they're going to break it to the Musgroves, remained a pleasure to her as a proof of friendship, which, wow, we're friends now. That's huge. Uh Um, And of deference for her judgment, a great pleasure. So things are changing. Big things are happening. Um, these are great chapters. They are. We so could have spent a lot more time talking about them. I think we've we've already talked a really long time. Sorry, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. You hung in there. Way to go. You no, know, we could spend hours minutely dissecting every decision that these characters have made um, yeah. because it's so fun. Why wouldn't you? But um, thank you, Chelsea for coming on old books with grace i had such a good time me too and i'm sorry for yammering on i just love it so much it's so good and you are not yammering it's such a page turner it's so especially these chapters yes you can't uh, all the subtext like you you have to find out you have to keep going i love that and it gets that way again volume two you guys we're on volume two this is very exciting (laughs) um and no more accidents on lime no more no more jumps off the cob but a lot more subtext coming up so um don't forget to subscribe um to the youtube uh channel or to the podcast and um i do have an instagram account where you can keep abreast of all the happenings of old books with grace and that's old books with grace with underscores in the spaces between the words and i'd love to hear from you especially regarding the matters of who you think is not handsome but better looking than most i would love to know (laughs) (laughs) yes i loved it thank you chelsea and thanks for listening everybody 